Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 15th, 2013, and my guest is John Ralston Saul, author of numerous works of fiction and nonfiction, as well as the president of Penn International, the human rights group that works to protect writers and freedoms related to writing. John, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much. Our topic for today is your book with the rather startling title, Voltaire's Bastards, a reference to the central theme of your book, which is the illegitimate offspring and consequences of Voltaire's ideas and those of his time in defense of reason. The book was published in 1992, but it's just been reissued with a new introduction. I want to ask you to start with a brief sketch of Voltaire and his influence. Reason seems like a good thing. What went wrong? Well, I think if you actually go back uh, and look at what they were saying in the context of, you know, late 18th century, mid 18th century, late 18th century, of course they were pushing reason because they, it was sort of a counterweight to superstition and stupidity and the ignorance of the, of the aristocracy and so on. And, but, but it, it was pushed in a much larger context. Uh, you know, you see the enemy, you fight the enemy, but I don't think they imagined that having, in a sense, defeated the enemy in the short term, that the next stage would be to rip reason out of context, out of the broader context, which is what I wrote about in, because this book is the beginning of four volumes, which ends with one called On Equilibrium, where I talk about multiple sort of six human qualities of equal value, of which one is reason. And others are things like ethics and intuition and common sense and imagination. So I don't think that Voltaire or any of the others would have imagined reason being, um, you know, put in a, plate, a platonic way in, in, in the, uh, on the throne and that everything else would be demoted beneath it. And the problem lies there. The problem lies in that kind of triangular view of there must be a truth and the truth in this case was reason. And I, I certainly Voltaire didn't believe that. I mean, flawed though, you know, I, we know about his flaws, but he he didn't think that way. He reason was one of the tools. And you blame that triumphant aspect of reason for a lot of our modern ills. Uh, reason just by itself, okay, so we've over-elevated it. We've over-emphasized it. Uh, why is that so dangerous? Why has that gone so wrong? Well, I you know, it's it's ideology, basically. It's ideology versus humanism, I suppose you could say. It's certainty versus doubt. Once you sort of say, look, um, here's the solution to our problems. This will get us out of everything. Uh, let's go down this road. Well, then you, you, you basically, very quickly, you deform the thing itself. Reason, you know, we're always offered this choice between, well, if, we're, if we abandon reason, we'll become irrational. Well, that kind of Manichaean choice is, is artificial. Uh, there are lots of other um, counterweights out there apart from reason. You can be non-rational. You know, which is completely different from irrational. You you can you can use ethics. You can use you know intuition. You can use imagination. So, but if you become obsessed by rationalism, 
a reason, then you start to construct everything around it. And you're dragging everything through what you think is a rational methodology. Well, of course, imagination is not rational. You know, ethics is not rational. Intuition is not rational. So you're now deforming human intelligence, the the ability of humans to act in a sensible way when faced by a crisis or an opportunity. So you could actually look at things like um, our inability to respond to an environment, you know, environmental crisis over the last half century, which most people agree is there, but our inability to deal with it coming from this, this very linear and in the end utilitarian approach where we're not able to act in a sensible manner. And that that comes from a couple of hundred years, several hundred years of being obsessed by rational methodology, which gradually, um, what's the right way of putting it? It, it? The narrower you make it, the ideology, the more you end up going down the pole to less and less complicated ways of doing things. So the original rational idea gradually declines into utilitarianism. And, 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 and logic and so on and, and misses the original complexity of the idea of the 18th century. I mean, I say the 18th century, but of course in the book, I, you know, I trace its origins obviously to, to, I think it was 12th century. I mean, it's modern origins, no, not its origins. It's, well, those, it's modern form. Those insights resonate with me because I, I have, uh, as an economist, Economists tend to think of themselves as a branch of uh, applied mathematics. Many economists do. Right. I've right. started to push – for a while I started thinking, no, 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 it's more like biology. But now I'm actually thinking – which it has a strong biological component, yes, evolutionary, emergent phenomenon. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I find myself thinking what it's really like is history, which is inevitably messy. We don't pretend – to say we know the cause of the Civil War. We understand there are many causes of the Civil War. We don't pretend we can weight them. Oh, this was 37%. And in the last financial crisis, people would press me and say, well, what percent of the crisis was caused by X? And I'm thinking it's just not a legitimate question. It's not the same question as what percentage of um, of, say, the children in the classroom are are women, which is a measurable percentage you can actually calculate or what what percentage right <laughs> yeah so i'm just going to read a quote i'm going to let you uh, a lot of this book is is um, is highly entertaining as a, a rather extended rant i have to i have to describe it as that in parts it's full of actual information uh, and ideas it's bristling with ideas I, i've bent down way too many pages in it uh, for things I was fascinated by or disagreed with or just loved uh, stylistically. But I'm going to read a quote here that you say about the humanities, and I want you to expand on that if you feel like it, or you can just say, yeah, uh, thank you. But here's the quote. Not only have the humanities been singled out as the enemy of reason, but there's been a serious attempt to co-opt them by transforming each sector into a science – Thus, architecture has become a quantitative technological formation in which the details add up to the building. Even art history has been converted from a study of beauty and craft into a mathematical view of creativity. The new art historians are interested not so much in art or history as in technical evolution. The social sciences, new creations of the mathematical obsession, are of course the principal example of the humanities deformed. The reduction of politics, economics, social problems, and the arts to mathematical visions and obscure, hermetically sealed vocabularies 
may well be looked upon by those who come after us as one of the greatest follies of our civilization. Uh, strong words. Uh, you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, instantly, the one word I regret in there, and I'm hearing it read back to me is the word mathematics, because, of course, it's also a deformation of mathematics, which is a very, you know, imaginative area, if thought of really as mathematics, as opposed to, I don't know, uh, mathematics in a much, in a, well, I'll use the word a lot in a more sort of linear way. Um, and, and let me just, as, as a way into it, you, you know, you, you rightly say, in a sense, as a, a rant side to the book. But on the other hand, what it isn't is it's not that 20th century thing of, um, here's, here's some facts and here's some examples of the facts, right? Which is right. a fairly classic way. It is not that. So that in a way, a lot of people said to me, you've written the book backwards because you start out by, with your, with your theory and then you work your you way through the arguments. Yeah. And then, then the, then, then the stories become illustrations of the argument as opposed, they're not proofs. So this is the exact opposite of how you get a PhD, said I PhD to you PhD. I mean, this would not get you a PhD because it's not fact-based leading to conclusion. It's actually argument with illustration. So in a way, it belongs to an approach which is pre-19th century. It's much more out of, the approach I've taken is much more out of an era where there's no difference between fact and fiction, or fiction and non-fiction. Um, you know, f fiction is really about truth, right? Fiction is about finding out what Should is be. truth. Yeah. Should be. And, you know, whereas facts are just, there are lots of facts out there, and you can choose a few to prove your point. Yes, it's very this is rare true. This is true, yeah. exactly. So the book is almost like a novel. And I think this is what slightly um, uh, disturbs some people, is that it's not written the way most big books of analysis of where we are and where we're going are written. Um, it, it is almost like a book out of the 18th century. So that... Um, and, 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 and I think that's very relevant to what I'm saying about the universities. I, I, since then, I would say I've gone further. It now seems to me, and both of us have spent time in universities. You still do, I think, right? Correct. And I've just been named a distinguished professor of whatever at a, at a university. Um, uh, Ryerson, uh, I actually think the universities are becoming a bigger and bigger part of the problem. It's not because the kids aren't smart. It's not because the professors aren't smart. It's because the structures which we've accepted, which again are extracted and are becoming more, are narrower and narrower pieces of things, are getting in the way of us talking about what's going on and, and, and being able to think in an interesting um, cross-collateral way. And the attempts at, you know, interdisciplinary work aren't, you may know some exceptions, but I don't know many they're where awful. it's really no, – Yeah, they don't are, really work. Most of them are awful. It's yeah. too, it's, we because pretend. they're basically putting two bits of math or two bits of facts and saying, well, let's talk about these. As yeah, we, have a, to, we have a romance about interdisciplinary work and cross-cultural work that doesn't work very well when people no. are specialists. <laughs> That's right. So we have to rethink completely the way we're doing our universities because they're just getting in the way – well, I'll give you an example um, – uh, if I look at, at, at uh, tenure, in my mind, tenure was created largely to give professors the ability to be public voices. 
because they couldn't be fired. In other words, there were people who knew and they were meant to be in the public debate. And we, it, it ended up being often the exact opposite, that in fact it becomes an excuse to be a hermit. And it's sort of as if we've given you 10 years so that you can pay your mortgage or something. Uh, it isn't, it's supposed to be an allowance to do dangerous things intellectually, publicly. And we need that. Those of those out there who are working for corporations or governments and who are prevented from doing it. I think, yeah, I you know. think the flaw there and the idea is that is it says, okay, uh, we're going to create a structure of employment that takes all the risk out of life, the work side of life, uh, as long as you get through this hurdle in the first, say, seven years, uh, yeah. without realizing that that's not going to attract risk takers. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> the, I agree. The, the issue it backfired in a way. Yeah and, yeah. and we haven't found a way around that backfire. And of course, those who are in place don't want it no, to. They, they kind of like it. Uh, they kind of like it. Yeah. But there's no question that there is a big problem. And, you know, I'm a Canadian. I can say, I'll give you one tiny Canadian example. Here's a country with two official languages, French and English, right? And the whole country has to work on the basis of how these two cultures and languages function together. And yet, because of the linearity of the, you know, European, North American tradition, if you want to study English Canadian literature, Alice Munro, right? Um, you do it through an English department, which is in, in a line from England. And if you want to do French, you could this line from France, but never the two. You know, I don't know. That's just a sort of funny example of what our problems are with economics, with the environment, with uh, philosophy. Um, you know, the, you, you know, Americans and Canadians haven't had an original thought in 400 years because philosophy is based out of Europe, right? And if we can't base it out of Immanuel Kant, then we're not going anywhere. And you could see people like well, that- Richard Rorty in the States struggling with the fact that they were secondary products of something that belonged elsewhere. That's a problem. Well, there is a strain in American philosophy going through the pragmatists of Charles Peirce yeah. and others that's very yeah. similar to your complaint. Yeah, but they've never been able to dominate because it keeps going back to this very narrow, linear approach. And 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 sorry, just to and then I'll I'll stop. You mentioned economic history and economics as history. I mean, I think one of the most and here you may disagree with me, um, but I think one of the most interesting problems of the last forty years, say from the seventies on, has been in many places the gradual removal of economic historians. I mean, now you, you you're you're going to be able to tell me something I don't know. No, no, is. no, no. You're right. When I was in graduate, okay. when I was in graduate school, economic history was a requirement. Um, I think that's gone at the University of Chicago. It's certainly not in place in most places, and I think we were one of the last ones. But I was really speaking more methodologically, just in the way yep. his, we approach history. But certainly, economic history in particular is an application of the point. Um, now, I don't know many authors who compare Cardinal Richelieu and uh, Robert McNamara, but you do. <laughs> what do they have in common, and uh, why, why, why were they bad? Why, why were they bad? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's about methodology. And what I was trying to show, and that was just a couple of – that's just two of the examples that I was using. But that, that we, we came into the 60s and 70s really believing – and other people have written about that – believing that a kind of tight 
rational methodology, efficiency, deliverability, structures, and so on, would lead Management. to progress, would lead to growth, and all the rest of it. And we thought this was brand new, and it was coming out of managerial methodologies which were born as you know in 1870s, 1880s in in France and in the United States, um, uh, Harvard, and so on. And and nobody was sort of saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, let's have another look at this methodology. Because when you look at a little more closely, you suddenly realize that the fathers of this approach, and there are a number of them, but one of the key ones was Cardinal Richelieu, who really invents the modern nation state, what, the, the Westphalian nation state, the, what I call them, I don't think I do yet in this book, but later I started to, the monolithic concept of the nation state and how it would be structured and that really the guy who gets the act together to do that is Richelieu and interestingly enough he creates some things like the first modern approaches towards secret services and secrecy as methods of power and control very relevant today you know listening to people, gathering information on people. He's the guy who takes the little bits and pieces of the Inquisition which are quite narrow and, and people don't, people don't understand what they really mean. I mean, it's a, the Inquisition takes this rational approach towards the gathering of information and control and he turns it into a nation state structure. And so, you know, you can, I trace it through and you suddenly see a guy like Robert McNamara and I give examples of others in other countries and they're really just 20th century versions of, you know, 17th century, 16th century, creation of France. You give McNamara the benefit of the doubt, uh, which is what makes it interesting to me. You say he, he's, he, he may have meant well, but he managed to, in many of his activities, achieve exactly the opposite of what he may have intended. Yeah, I mean, he's a fascinating case. And of course, once the book came on, uh, he went on to become more and more interesting right up to the bitter end, you know, when, when he never actually apologized for his errors but tried to skate very cleverly in a rational argument around the fact that he held a responsibility. He never actually took responsibility because he thought of himself as a humanist, but actually did not act in any way as a humanist. And I think that contradiction is really, makes him one of the most interesting figures of the 20th century, really. That's very... It's very you know, difficult. Kissinger is not nearly as interesting because Kissinger is a much more predictable figure. I mean, there are lots of examples just like him throughout history. Um, you know, the guy he wrote so much about, you know, the Austrian um, chancellor, um, Metternich. I mean, there's lots of them. Whereas McNamara is really an outcome of the failure of rationality. Let's let's talk about our heroes. Uh, who should who are they and who should they be? Well, as you know, there's a chapter in the book where I really dump on the idea of the hero. And this is very unpopular these days because we've been taught again and again and that we need heroic leaders and what we're lacking are leaders. And part of that comes from the fact that we're, we're shoving hundreds of thousands of kids out of management schools who, who have confused concepts of management with concepts of leadership when they're in a way almost the opposite. I mean, that's one of the big problems in the in the economic world, in the business world, but it's also one of the big problems in managing banks, uh, federal banks, international banks, um, and so on. Um, you know, I, always, I think that the humanist school is a minority school, and it will always be a minority school. And, and we're kept sane by the fact that periodically the humanists get enough influence 
to set the direction, to reset the clock, to get us back on track, and then we fall back into the hands of the non-humanists. Um, and I guess we're in one of those periods where we're desperate for a reset. Um, so sure, there are, there are, there are a few examples here and there. There really aren't very many of them. And I think I, you know, I've given examples in history of, you know, the combination of Henry IV and, and his minister of finance, Sully, who would have handled the last financial crisis very, very differently. Um, now this is where you're going to discover something about me, which is I'm a left-handed dyslexic who can never remember names. And, um, well, you got uh, Metternich there. You pulled it out of the hat. At, yeah, yeah. So now I'm starting <laughs> to think of all the names I can't think of, which is, which is, for example, the great, uh, the man who really reset the clock for Athens, um, um, uh, by ripping up the debt. Well, it wasn't in paper at the time. Okay. Um, I can't remember who, that either. So we'll, we'll put who a, is the we'll, great, great poet of the day and was given power for a year and got rid of the draconian code and brought in the beginnings of modern justice and, and basically uh, just ripped up the debt, and that's what relaunched Athens as the Athens that we um, admire today. Um, and uh, Michel L'Hôpital, who's a, a, a very, very interesting French chancellor, who was, did an extremely good job over a short period of time, which still stands as an example uh, for people. Now, I've given us several French examples, and you're wondering why I'm giving so many. Um, but okay, I think it's the, a fine. It, it had some fine people. But you're a big fan of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, and of course, you know, Jefferson's is is flawed. But then I think I am too, probably, and probably you are too. Um, you bet. There's there's no question that that Jefferson had a way of talking about things. People get obsessed by how clever he was at outmaneuvering people. But what's interesting was that underlying all of that, there was a broader way of coming at things. I mean, for example, the enormous pride he took in keeping the United States out of war and how he saw that in a larger picture, how, you know, how he saw violence and nonviolence working together. I mean, that shows, you know, that shows that at some level he belonged to the the humanist tradition. That, you know, there's this thing of when you have power, your most important responsibility is not to do damage to the thing you're in charge of. I think he understood that profoundly. And so that is a non, it's a non-solution oriented approach. You bet. Uh, and that's interesting. It's a doubt approach that a lot of it is just getting out of things, avoiding things. Humility. And a lot of people come into your office and tell you what the truth is. You know, <laughs> And that's when you get in trouble is when you believe them. Yeah, I interview them every week. Um, I, I do, and I think some of them are might some some could be right, of course. So it's that's why it's so uh, it's interesting. I I think we have such a longing for the magic formula, and the magic formula is going to be given to us by the Wizard of Oz, uh, who is going to get us back to Kansas or whatever is you know solve the problem of world poverty or whatever whatever the problem is. Uh, I couldn't help thinking about your book this week when we we have a new nominated chair of the Federal Reserve and the enthusiasm for Janet Yellen. God bless her. She's a she's a, a fine scholar. And but the idea that she can somehow steer the American economy um, better than her two predecessors because because she hasn't done it yet. So she, we, we have to desperately hope that she'll do better uh, is um, 
I don't know what you call that. Uh, it is a corruption of reason, right? It, it is the idea. It is a corrupt. It's a well, and you see what you get out of the corruption of reason is this admiration for heroes, and that's why you'll notice in the book that when I use the word hero, I capitalize it. Now, um, I'll use another French example, which was Jean Moulin, who was one of the heroes of the resistance, and it's a sort of ethical hero, but I wouldn't capitalize it because it's not, you know, it's the Napoleonic idea of the hero that we're struggling with today. And that's the last thing that we need. Incidentally, it's Solon. Solon just came back to me. Um, And his first, you know, there is page 402. First act on taking power was to redeem all the forfeited land and free all the enslaved citizens. It was because, of course, debt was a criminal offense, as it was in many places up until in, in in North America in the 19th century. Um, and, and, uh, and it's so interesting the role that poetry played because he was the greatest poet. And it's worth quoting the poem because it's so relevant today. He says, public evil enters the house of each man. The gates of his courtyard cannot keep it out. It leaps over the high wall. Let him flee to a corner of his bedchamber. It will certainly find him out. And I think that idea that somehow a society and an education system which says and believes it's dependent on rational methodology has produced one of the most corrupt, and I mean that in every sense of the word, one of the most corrupt eras. Gosh, since when? I mean, we'd, you know, we'd have fun comparing. Um, and how did that happen? Because the rational methodology corrupted becomes amoral. Not immoral, amoral. And and I've gradually come to believe that, you know, immorality is at least something you can work with. (laughs) Amorality is impossible. Let me me pile on there Uh, because a lot of people apologize for the banks uh, in the last crisis with their excessive leverage and and not so uh, healthy bets by saying, well – that's that's their incentive. We gave them this incentive through bad public policy. So why do you why are you surprised that that they took advantage of it? Because their their job is to maximize profits. And I certainly have no problem with the idea that if I were as a human being in a situation where I had enormous temptation, that I might give into it. But we shouldn't excuse it. We shouldn't say, well, that was rational. So what can you expect? We should hope, as you point out, that there are other values besides rationality and efficiency and what's best for the bank that that they should have thought maybe this isn't the right thing to do. I understand it was their incentive to do it, but it's not the right thing. And there were, in fact, bankers who said this is – Correct. Not many. The wrong, and did, <laughs> not many. Not many. Um, and, uh, you know, it's also our inability to punish because, again, in a way <laughs> – if you just sit back very simply and you say, look, you know, what was criminal fraud in corporations in 1950? Uh, and this is a generality. And then you sort of look at, I don't think anybody's done a PhD on this, uh, the movement of bylaws, where gradually over, certainly from the 70s on, uh, things that were illegal were made legal inside corporations through changes in bylaws and then changes in laws. So that, for example, you know, employees uh, running joint stock companies could pretend they were capitalists and could pay themselves enormous benefits, uh, whether they were making doing well or not. And you actually compare how those bylaws worked and say, well, would that have actually been legal 
30 years before? And the answer is, in most cases, no, it would have been illegal. It would have been fraud. They're actually stealing money from the company. But part of this utilitarianism, this sort of rationality declined because isolated from other human qualities, has led to a thing, oh, well, that's just what you do. You know, that's just what happens. That's the way it's done, yeah. That's the way it's done. So you lose this capacity to act uh, in a humanistic way. Um, and, 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 and of course, you then open the door to populism which, and government by fear, which is so you open the door to the idea that, that people can seek power uh, uh, because they're against government. Um, because government is not in fact doing its job, has written itself out of acting as, uh, the, 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 the ethical anchor, the, the, the rational ethical humanist responsible anchor of the public good. Well, let's take the worst two events or worst two movements of the 20th century, which I would say are Nazism and fascism. Right. Um, and I, by fascism, I'm including Stalin. Uh, right. Can lump communism in with that the way it was practiced. Um, so, how do you see that as a? Because I think you do a natural outgrowth of the worship of reason. And I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back to the hero. Why is it that a Hitler or a Stalin or a Mao is able to uh, mobilize public opinion, and even in a democracy where we don't have the the, the mass violence of those evil societies, even in a democracy, uh, there's a certain abnegation of the um, of the citizens' uh, interest in the outcome and say, well, you guys take care of it. W w how are those related? And how do they relate to this, this, rent, this worship of reason? Well, uh, there's no question that um, that the application of Marxism, not Marxism, but the application of Marxism, um, yeah, I meant uh, to say Nazism and communism, and I, I, I just added fascism in there to, to mix yeah, it Yeah, no, up. no, no, but it's actually really important because for me, the third book in this series was Voltaire's Passage, The Doubter's Companion, which is a sort of ironic uh, philosophical dictionary. The third volume is called The Unconscious Civilization, which was based on the Massey Lectures. And it, basically the argument in that is that Mussolini won the Second World War. And what does that mean? Well, it means that Mussolini, sort of unlike Hitler, Mussolini, he was complete not bar, I mean, you know, violent, whatever, but, but his movement of fascism was based on arguments made by a large percentage of Italian philosophers who rejected democracy based on individualism. And by that, I mean responsible individualism, not the crazy particularly U.S. version of individualism means I can turn my back on society, responsible individualism, that, that, that they rejected the concept of the individual citizen in favor of the corporatist view, which is nothing to do with companies, the corporatist view that people primarily belong to groups and groups are interest groups. And they may be unions, they may be companies, they may be football teams, but that our principal... Uh, loyalty is to the group. We are judged through the group. We act through the group. And the, the, and it's the relation, the negotiations between the interest based negotiations between the groups that decides the direction in which society will go. And of course, when you look at the power of lobbying 
and the power of interest groups today in Western democracies, you realize the extent to which Mussolini's fascism won and the concept of the responsible individual lost. Now, neither has, it hasn't disappeared, but it's not dominant. You know, you can, some politician can rally the citizens for an election, but they don't stay engaged as citizens. They retreat within their specialism, speciality. You know, I'm a heart, I, I operate on hearts, so I won't comment on uh, nuclear um, fission, you know. But is it, isn't that, uh, in a sense, the ideal? Don't we want to live in a world where I don't have to – since I don't want the, the government in my backyard in that poem, the Solon poem, I don't want the public sector in my uh, bedroom or my driveway or my kitchen. Uh, isn't the ideal that I have more important things to do than to talk about what, what's going no, on? No, that's not what Solon's saying. No, I know that's not what Solon's saying, but that seems to me what you're saying. You're saying that what I'm talking about is balance. Go ahead. What what I'm talking about is that there, you know, that the the that you the more you are engaged as an individual in the public good, empathy, you know, (laughs) uh, 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 the idea of the imagining the other and what it is like to be the other. The more you're engaged in that way then the more individualistic you will be and be able to be because there will be this balance between your good and the public good. And there'll be room to be selfish at there, but it will not be the dominant element. The dominant element is empathy. And, you know, we know that that's what humanism says. We know that that's how societies function best is when we have a sense of the other and how we all function together. It isn't about love. You know, that's one of the dangers, well, you'll notice I'm very, very careful to stay away from concepts of love because, you know, how, how can you say you love your fellow American and you don't even know him? It's a meaningless or, statement. You know, you don't even know the people three houses down from you. Well, that's the problem. I, that's my question for you. You're talking but about But you the- don't have to love them. You don't have to like them. You can actively dislike your fellow citizens. That's fine. It isn't about love. It's about empathy. It's about the public good. It's about being able to imagine or feel, and I don't feel it's a dangerous word, imagine and feel together what it's like to be the other. And then on that basis, you put in place both uh, public programs and public protections, which make for a fair society. And that's that balance is the tough one. You know, it's it, and it's never perfect. It's never right. Um, you have to work at it every day. You have to wake up every morning and work at it. But if somebody wakes up every morning and says, listen, I'm a citizen. That means I don't have to do this and I don't have to do that. And I paid my taxes or I don't even want to pay my taxes. I mean, the very fact you could have had, a, sorry to do this, but you could have had a candidate for president who could publicly be proud of the fact that he'd minimized his taxes by sending his money abroad. You know, and that that was a statement of copping out as a citizen, right? From a society, whether you're on the left or the right, that that could happen without people saying, well, that's over. He's out. You know, he can't exist. That showed you what trouble we're in. Well, he did, he did have a little trouble, but I, I want to come back to this. A point. little trouble, but not, not absolutely. Fair that enough. It should have been catastrophic for a citizen to say that and want public office. I want to come back to this issue of of balance and enge- I, I might you might call it engagement. I, I don't. It's not realistic 
I don't think, in human nature. I, I like the, I, I'm a big fan of empathy, by the way, and I certainly agree with you that empathy is what makes us human. Uh, and Adam Smith felt that way. Adam Smith was a big believer that, uh, we should, uh, act responsibly toward others. And he argued that we act responsibly toward others because we are worried about our reputation and our self-image. So we obviously have some uh, respect for that idea that, that we're not just selfish, right? The question, though, is how do we get to that that nice phrase that we should support public activity that, that leads to fairness? How do you get there from here when it is going to require power to be concentrated and that's going to get corrupted either through the deception of the masses, as you write about quite a bit in the book – the way we, we are fooled by the, the great hero who's going to solve all our problems when, in fact, he's taking all our money uh, or, or, or abducting our, or, you know, our family members to do things we don't want them to do, they don't want to do. How do we square that circle? Uh, I want to live in a world where my empathy is voluntary so that that corruption is impossible. To state it more strongly, has there ever been a society that got that balance correct and it was attractive? Well, I think, I think there's several parts to it. First of all, we're never going to accomplish it. And it's, you know, you, you, as I said a few minutes ago, you maintain it on a daily basis. And, and there are, you know, two sides to this idea of being a citizen. One of them is I'm an engaged citizen. And of course, you know, not everybody's going to do it. Not everybody's going to do it well. But the more people are engaged, the better. And the more they're, uh, uh, what we call volunteering now, but which is in fact a form of engaged citizenship, uh, the better. And, you know, some people will do it with their local school, public school. Some of them will do it uh, uh, because of the arts. Some of it will do it because of the street system. It doesn't really matter what you're doing it in. You just get the citizenry engaged. And that is your counterweight. That engagement is in effect your counterweight in a democracy. Now, in order to actually deliver things, and some of them will have to do with public safety, some of them will have to do with health care, some of them will have to do with public education, you put in place these public structures. Some of them will be local, some will be, you know, state, some will be uh, national, some of them will be freestanding public sector. I think in one of the chapters I talk about water and, you know, the corruption of privately held water. It's it's one of the most corrupt areas in the world because it's an easy when the money comes in and uh, your 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 protection is to buy people off. Um, that that you know what you you can have public institutions which are arm's length from administration and politics, and you can have systems for rotating the leadership of those uh, organizations. So you what you want to have is a wide variety of structures and organizations, but the idea that you can do it without them is simply not realistic because if you don't have them, then basically you're handing it over to the private sector and the private sector, when asked to look after the public good, is immediately and deeply corrupt. So, whoa, um, whoa, 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 why? Oh, it, well, because, because the private sector rightly is based on profit. And what's and, the public and, sector going to be based on? It's not based on profit. It's based on the public good. But the people involved in it are human beings who you've told me are flawed. Uh, Absolutely, they're flawed. They are. We're all flawed. We've already agreed on that. <laughs> you know? So, what's so the what difference dealing... between public uh, saying it's public, saying it's well motivated, and the actual behavior of the people involved who tend to look out for themselves? Well, isn't, isn't the lesson of the founders and Thomas Jefferson, who you like, that we need restraints on human nature, 
and we need a system that limits the power of those above us to, to, to exploit us. But the restraints, we need restraints on everything. We need restraints on the private sector. We need restraints on the public sector. We need restraints in every single direction on ourselves. That's why the term is responsible individualism, not, you know, not wildcard individualism, turning your back. It is extremely boring and tiring to be the citizen of a democracy. It's far, far easier to be middle class in a semi-benign dictatorship. You know, life under Louis Philippe or life under George II is a lot easier than life in a democracy because actually you can, if you're in the middle, upper middle class, you know, as long as you're not below that, not much is asked of you and you get to have quite a nice life. But once you move into a democracy, it is very hard work because all of us are flawed and all of us need to be both engaged and restrained at the same time. See, this is, this is why it's much more complicated than the, the rational methodology. So, you know, we know that, that uh, the free, free market can work very, very well with high taxes, uh, 1950s, right? Uh, we know that lowering taxes may or may not produce growth. As, as we've seen in the last 30 year, years, it hasn't really produced growth because the, because the problem lay somewhere else. So you have to watch the kind of simple ideas of let's just let's just release people to do what they want. Okay? Then we're not in a democracy because we don't have functioning citizens. We don't have restraints on everybody. And we're also confusing things by saying that what drives the public sector is the same thing as what drives the private sector. That's a bad argument for both. I mean, you can argue that one of the you know great victories, and I did this in, the, if you like, the the fifth book in the series called The Collapse of Globalism, that 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 the great victory out of the 1970s was that we started to try to look at the public good through uh, theories of economics or a theory of economics, um, and suddenly we're talking about. Uh, I don't know, people who, uh, the uh, children at schools as clients. I'm, I don't know. You know what I mean? You yeah, know that's this. a bad idea. I it's think, a I terrible mean, I think, idea. I, I, they're not clients. They're no. citizens. Well, or they're children, and, and, and like, whatever. They're not, although, although I would argue that the public school system does a bad job uh, of treating them as anything. Customers is the uh, clients. Those, that's a bad, that's a bad idea up, up to a point. But to treat them as um, pawns is is worse. <laughs> of course, but they shouldn't be either. And that's where you come back to this idea of the engaged citizen, of, of, of the idea of the what what is why what is schooling. I mean, it's very interesting when you go back into the 19th century and you look at the rise of public schools in the United States, in Canada, and Britain's a little bit different because you have more of a class system. But say in France, in Germany, Germany's very interesting there, Switzerland. And the principal concept of the public education system is we need citizens and citizens will be able to do their job better as engaged citizens if they're educated. In other words, we, there's a misreading that's been going on in the last 30, 40 years that the purpose of education is to train people to do jobs, a utilitarian interpretation. And I think it's fascinating to go back and see poverty-stricken illiterate farmers saying, I want my kids educated so they can be citizens. They just assume that they'll do better financially, but they know that's not the purpose. 
And so this is part of the deformation of the rational system, that it's led us away from that actual belief that we can do better by understanding the concept of the public good. And it's a humanist idea. I, I and just, we're, we're in deep trouble on that front. I, I just wanted to make the point again I was trying to make earlier, which I, right. I, I think got, got confused. I want a world where I can focus on my family, my gifts, whatever they may be in, in, in the craft that I focus them on, on helping the people I care about and spending time with them. And the idea that I need to spend a lot of time worrying about the government is a world where the government's doing too many things. I, I want a world where the government's reach is smaller so I can focus on the things I'm good at. I'm not going to ever be good at restraint at, at, at solving the problem for the reasons that you talk about. I, I combined with a bunch of others are going to struggle. We're going to struggle to solve those problems. I'd rather solve them in a different way through empathy and voluntary organizations rather than trying to solve things from the top down, which I think but has then, been an, an you, utter failure. Well, then you see, I think the problem with that is it's a lovely idea, but, but there's a there's there's some romanticism in there, which maybe is. A, <laughs> but you know, but Fair I enough. think the, dif the difficulty with that is that you have to recognize the different forces at play. So you've chosen to focus on "quote unquote" big government. Um, but this then prevent, but you're not focusing on, say, big business. Um, you know, you're not focusing on for, you know, let's just take the historic example, I don't know, of, um, tobacco industry, you know, or the oil or, industry. Or pollution. Pollution would be a good example to, to, yeah. to beat so me up you, with. You know, all of these forces, that's why I keep talking about balance. They need to be controlled in various ways. I mean, that's why you have to have independent public structures. That's why you have to have multi-layered public structures. Complexity is a good thing. One of the problems with a hero-driven society is that it hates complexity. And, you know, we're, you and I, how, how old are you? 59. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a few years, I'm 66. So we've lived through an era where complexity has been increasingly demeaned as a failure of leadership. And <laughs> You know, right. and, in, and, and in fact, it is extremely complicated and it's accepting that complexity that allows you then to look at complicated things and come up with clear answers. And, you know, you take the example of the, you know, the financial collapse that, that happened a few years ago and the terrible mistakes that were made about saving the banks. And, you know, I just keep saying, I mean, I was sitting in Spain the other day when Collapse of Globalism came out in a new edition in Spanish and I, and I suddenly said, so when did it become more important to save banks than to save citizens? How did that happen? You know? Even, I mean, and even more depressing, when did it become acceptable to pretend that by saving the banks, we're saving the citizens? So that oh, absolutely. Ben absolutely. Bernanke is revered for saving the economy when, in fact, he saved the banks. Well, now, no argument for me. And, yeah. uh, but, you know, they could have just turned around and, you know, I'll do a, real, a, a simple thing. This is what you can do at a complexity. You just say, okay. This week, the government is going to write off all mortgages in the United States up to $300,000. They're gone. And uh, uh, so if you owe 400000 on your mortgage, you still owe 100000 So I just picked a number out of that air, right? So, so mortgages that will handle the working class, the lower middle class, and a good part of the middle class. 
what if this is a this is a, an Athenian approach? What have you just done? You stabilized your homeowning class, so you've you've removed the essence of panic and despair. Uh, you've removed unpayable debt. Uh, that debt goes into the banks. You've saved the banks that can be saved by saving the citizens first. And you've put the citizens in a place where they can borrow money again. You may have relaunched your economy. It's not complicated. It's really easy. It doesn't take a lot of work. Um, and the banks that fall will fall and so be it. So, so I think that's an awful idea. But, you, but however, that's but – it's not a lot as of people bad agree idea. with me, interestingly no, enough. Oh, no, no. There's a lot, yeah, it's, it's, some of the state bankers actually agree with no, me, but they weren't allowed to say it. It's know. a bad idea, but it's not obviously worse than what we actually did. So, so, oh, <laughs> so, oh, so I think it's much less worse than what we did because it actually stabilizes. Well, almost. you hope it does. There's the law of unintended consequences. The complexity you're talking about makes it not obvious what the full ramifications of that policy are. It might well, have. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that you know it's like war. You know, great generals, really great generals, understand in a crisis that there is a strategic opportunity. And the worst thing you can do is pretend that there cannot be an opportunity. And therefore, you slip into, you know, the, the dumb rationality of a First World War general sitting in the trenches, which is what we did. We basically adopted First World War trench strategy or tactics. And we're living the consequences of it. You know, we're going to wear this for a very long time. I, I'm just, you know, I'm just making the point that I think under complexity, um, the best solution is not obvious. All solutions are flawed. In fact, the, the, uh, I've quoted Thomas Sowell. I forget whether it's Thomas Sowell or George Stegler who said in economics, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And I don't know what the consequences, I can't begin to, to know what the full consequences of that idea that you just put forward are. I have a pretty good idea of what we just did. Which is to stabilize the banks in the name of, of stabilizing the economy and thereby rewarding people who made horrible decisions right. and telling them they can do it again, which is uh, hor- yeah. just absolutely horrifying. Uh, and I would also Total point, agreement. Total this, agreement. But, but in both of them, they're ex post solutions to an ex ante problem, which is that the, the, the encouraging of debt and leverage across the economic spectrum that got us into the mess to start with. Well, no, I agree totally about that. I mean, and that was a deregulation. See, this is where you get into difficulties with your argument, which is that it's the regulation of the banks and the separation of deposit banking from merchant banking, which keeps the kind of stability. Now, you, let's you just ask yourselves a simple question here. How did the United States get itself into a crisis, whereas Canada didn't? Yeah. Not because we're smarter and not because we're nicer, but because the, the Canadian banks – who have a, have a lot of difficulties with because they're big medieval sort of things. Um, but they are controlled by rather old fashioned, uh, conservative regulations. And they came to the government with the then opposition, which is a neoconservative opposition. It's now the government and asked de- desperately, desperately to be deregulated so they could be modern and fancy like the American banks and the British banks. And at the end of the day, the the prime minister, uh, an old-fashioned red liberal, uh, we would call him in Canada, and the minister of finance, Paul Martin, who was one of the people who invented the G20, just they they hummed and hawed and hummed and hawed, which is a good thing in politician, and and then they just said no. And as a result, when the crisis came, our banks were fine. They were fine because they were properly 
heavily publicly regulated and there was a separation between, to a great extent, between the deposit function and the merchant function. Yeah, that was and too, that's what was lost. That was yeah. too old-fashioned for us. Uh, so we combined <laughs> – we combined. And that's what saved us. Yeah, we, we combined the innovation of merging the deposit with the investment side and the bailout, which we, yeah. which we did in advance of these bailouts – to encourage people to keep lending money to people who made risky bets. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I, I don't blame it just on deregulation. I don't think that's fair. You have to blame it on deregulation plus uh, lots of subsidies to banks so that they didn't have to face the downside. So you said, the upside's yours. Congratulations. We live in a modern free market era. But the downside, the taxpayers can have. And yeah. that's uh, the worst no, of all possible worlds. But that was in worlds. a way a form of deregulation because it was losing a concept of the difference between the public good – and private interest, you know. And, you know, it's interesting when this book was being prepared for its, because it, 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 it was always in print with, with vintage. And then their license ran out. And Simon Schuster said, we're going to reissue this with all the others and we're going to do a little forward. Where have we gone in the last 20 years? And I thought, okay, I'm going to read the book through and God knows it's long. And, and I thought, surely I'm going to rewrite the financial chapter, which is, and on uh, which sort of is a sort of joke around the loaves and the fishes, inflation, obviously. And it was it, it was focused to a great extent on the African debt crisis of the of the 90s, and how it was mishandled by the rational elites, who who curious enough because they became narrower and narrower, started to apply technical and moral attitudes. In other words, that debt becomes a moral issue, which it is not. And um, it's a technical issue, and you deal with it appropriately, you have appropriate rules and so on. And and they basically crucified Africa um, on the basis of rational methodology. And, you know, they destroyed what democracy there was, they encouraged civil wars, they broke the economies down, all in the name of the need to repay the African debts. And in the end, what was it, in, I've forgotten now, 2003 or something like that, they finally wrote off a good part of the debt, and Africa began to recover slowly. And what these guys have done in this last crisis is they haven't learned a thing. They're applying exactly what they applied to Africa, or they're applying it to us. Well, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I will agree with you that when you have a hammer, uh, you keep hitting the nails even when they you hit your thumb, and it doesn't matter. You just keep hitting them, trying to look for nails. So that- I, I, I just left the chapter exactly as it was. Because I think, you know, most people when they read it will say, gosh, this sounds familiar. <laughs> They'll realize that we're doing to ourselves what we did to Africa. Well, and the, your critique of the military adventurism and the, and the increase in the number of wars is even more relevant today than it was then. Um, and the me, little chapter on secrecy. There's yeah. a, there's a, there, you know, here I have great admiration for the United States government because it's a combination and you do have these – sections of the government which are in the business of keeping track of other sections of the government so you do actually announce once a year exactly how many secrets you've created and in what category <laughs> you know and, and i sort think of. the chapter yes yeah, sort, sort of, of. <laughs> and the chapter on secrets at that time i don't remember i'd have to go and look it up i think the states was creating the united states was creating about five million new secrets a year and I made a great – or six, and I made a great joke out of, you know, what could that possibly be and how could it be that many secrets a year? Now you're up to something like 54 million new secrets a year. World's more complicated. Um, <laughs> let me ask you about something that you couldn't have written about in 1992, but you wrote about a, 
a, a version of it, which is television. You wrote about you have some negative things to say about television, and this is in advance of the internet, which has made right. television look like a, a primitive. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know what, but talk about how information and statistics and data uh, interact with our uh, viewing habits, deluge us, and uh, what your cultural observations are on that. Well, I mean, I think the first, it's hard to say something original in this area, Frank. I mean, but it, it's obvious that we're somewhere in the middle of something, or we may even be in early stages of it. Uh, it's just moving so fast. Things are created. I was at a meeting uh, a few months ago as president of Penn International, where 150 experts on the on on um, e-books, and they're talking about how we have to retool, you know, the whole publishing industry for e-books. And I just stood up at the end and I said, you know, as a writer, I really don't care because whatever the method will, our books will come out through that method, providing we get paid something. But Who's to say ebooks will exist in five years at the rate we're going? I mean, I wouldn't exactly bank myself on on long term. And it's, it they're is, not going to look like they look like now. I don't know they what they're going to be, but they're going to be something different. Exactly. But you just saw all these people. They were like Voltaire's bastards. They just had to have. They had to have an answer, and it had to be you know going down this line. And the head of uh, one of the uh, national archives got up and said, "We're going down the digital route. This is the future." And then at the end, he said, "Of course, we don't know how to hold on to it, so we're going to have to print out a percentage of it." They don't even understand what they're saying. So I think we're at a at a, at a very interesting and confusing point where uh, people are starting to understand that facts do not produce truth. Um, that there are billions of facts and that that you you choose which facts you want in order to come up with an argument and there so we're maybe at the beginning of either a disastrous phase which could lead us very easily back to fascism very very easily there are lots of signs of the returns of the element you know the return of populism at such a strong level in all countries including the united states those are the precursors of fascism. I mean, you know, you just look at the history of it the last time. It starts with the rise of populism, you know, which is which is government through fear, manipulation of the citizen, uh, not by government so much as by uh, forces who are attempting to take power. Um, so we're in a very dangerous period. But it's also an interesting opportunity because people are starting to understand that it isn't a couple of facts that prove something. You have to have some understanding of what's going on. And it isn't only, it, it, it includes facts, but it isn't only fact-based. So that leads you back towards humanism. That leads you back towards empathy and the idea of the public good. And it leads you a little bit maybe away from the old right-wing, left-wing conundrum, if you like, um, which people were struggling with, which I think Adam Smith was struggling with and then totally misrepresented as you i'm sure will agree by our departments of economic uh by taking well, small they, don't, yeah, they don't even pay attention to him really so it doesn't, it doesn't really matter he's just a figure you know head. i go into halls where there, there are all these economists and i say okay honestly how many of you have actually read wealth of nations all the way through and you get like small 10. it's a small group yeah. <laughs> and then i say how many of you have read you know theory of moral sentiments and you get two even a chapter <laughs> Even a chapter, what they've read is the extracts they were given, and they're they're completely misrepresenting what Smith was saying. He was a humanist who believed in the public good, who believed in citizenship. He also believed in the market and how to use the market. Um, so I think uh, let me 
say one thing. I don't think, I can't remember if I said it in Voltaire's Bastards, but I think one of the, people say we're at the end of the Gutenberg era, right? End of the printing press era. Okay, fine. But what's interesting about that is that the Gutenberg era is essentially an era of written culture, written civilization. And you could sort of say, and I sort of say it, that gradually as we went further and further into written culture, we became more and more the victims of the details of it. So we ended up in the second half of the 20th century, sort of where we were in the middle of the 18th century, which is with monks scribbling in the margins of texts. So that's the modern PhD, it's technocrats, it's the management schools protecting their, pretending they're leading us somewhere where they're leading us absolutely nowhere. They have no idea where they're going, in fact. I mean, the, probably the single most dangerous organization in the world today, in the Western world today, is the management schools because they're just creating confusion. And they replace kind of the lawyers and the priests and the soldiers as the, as the big force of me, organized mediocrity. But in a curious way, the lawyers were more interesting, certainly. You know, the law is more interesting than management, I think, by far. Anyway, um, what I'm saying is that we've come in a curious way to the dangerous end of a, a written, obsessed society. And this new technology is leading us back towards the oral. Did I say that in the book? I don't remember. I don't think I, so. And I think we're moving, you know, it, these things go in waves. These waves may last 400 years, 500 years. I think that there, there's, there are worries about moving back into the oral. For example, populism does well out of that. But there are also enormous advantages because it can free up the imagination. It can free up intuition. It can free up empathy. It's, um, and there are great strengths in oral. I mean, there are a lot of um, theories of understanding which are easier to get at through the oral. For example, you look at this environmental crisis and um, the, the, to a great extent, our inability to move on it has come through an obsession with technical linear arguing over, over you know, tiny percentage points, right? Uh, whichever side you're on. Whereas our, where our failure has been, our inability to get out of the Platonist into the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the sort of more inclusive view where humans are not on top, where we're part of the whole, where we actually see our own actions as having consequences that are related to the consequences inside, you know, where we live, well, the water, you know, the atmosphere, that, that we don't have a privilege that we actually can't get away with doing anything we want just because we're humans and we're rational. And that's sort of interesting. And it's not romantic. It's actually very tough. And it actually could lead to a very interesting new, you know, not new, but more healthy, a healthier approach to economics, which is a more inclusive approach to how we do economics, how we do numbers. I mean, you know, I mean, we've been, we've been saying, what is, how does a company make a profit and what does profit look like? But, but we're not including half the costs. You know, those costs are, shuff costs are shuffled off to municipal governments or who's going to clean up the river. No, we, we, regulate them. we regulate environmental activity now. We're not living in a free market world. I, I, there's lots of – and we don't account for them, but we certainly – in formal accounting and profit. But we certainly – they don't get to 
merely push those costs onto others. But but I take you. Well, I think they do to a great extent still. You know, I really do think they do. I mean, I think that they were not really looking at. I mean, just the way, for example, private sector moved away from training. You know, you, in, the, in the 18th and 19th century, in the first half of the 20th century, one of the big responsibilities of the private sector was to train kids to do to do jobs. And they gradually pushed that off into the schooling system. And then that that's one of the things that caused the schooling system to think that its job was training, not educating citizens. Well, I don't, I don't think they did anything. I think a whole set of social forces emerged that – Well – that did yeah. that. It wasn't an intention or – Well, you, you, you know, let's put it this way. It is one of the outcomes of this rising specialization yeah, and narrowing of rational movement. So I, I apologize for the word they. Okay. That's all right. Well, it's just yeah. – it, it, we all have – I a, think it, it justifies the idea of vultures bastards that they've really lost track. But even People someone, in charge had lost track of what they were doing and why. Even someone as subtle as think – subtly uh, skilled sure at nuance and complexity and balance can sometimes – uh, maybe uh, look for, look for good guys and bad guys, and I think I think one of the challenges that that we all face is this um, this what you you call it a you know an urge to have an ideology an urge for a hero. I think one of the most corrupting aspects of our current political debate is that my guys are honest and truth seekers, and your guys are evil and dangerous, and uh, and I think that's what we need to avoid if we're going to. Live as human beings in a in a thoughtful society. Um, I'm gonna, let's close with the following. Can I just say one line? Sure. There, which is, say I two. agree with you, and that 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 comes back to comes back to transparency. It comes back to balance, and it comes back to you know encouraging people to to understand things are complicated, and people who are in charge have doubts, and they talk about their doubts in public, and then they say things like, you know, we're going to try this. And, you know, it may not work, and if it doesn't work, throw me out. But, you know, I think this might be a way to go. That sort of, you know, curious enough, public good risk, not just an end private sector risk. They're, they're different. But that sort of idea that a leader is somebody who knows how to talk about direction and knows how to talk about uncertainty and knows how to talk about the public good as opposed to interest, always interest-based. We are capable of more than self-interest. Anyway, go on. I'm going to I'm going to close on a different note. I was I was going to ask something else, but your comment reminds me of the following. Your thesis is that great intellectual trends have gone in directions dug out currents that they didn't expect to go into and uh, the results not been so happy. I, I want to try a different explanation and get your reaction to it, which is that this is just the way we are. Uh it's not a result of intellectual history. I've got a quote here from Adam Smith in The Theory of Moral Sentiments when he's talking about uh, kings and leaders, great – we would call them authoritarians, tyrants, dictators. He says, even when the order of society seems to require that we should oppose them, we can hardly bring ourselves to do it. That kings are the servants of the people to be obeyed, resisted, deposed, or punished as the public conveniency may require – is the doctrine of reason and philosophy, but it is not the doctrine of nature. Nature would teach us to submit to them for their own sake, to tremble and bow down before their exalted station, to regard their smile as a reward sufficient to compensate any services and to dread their displeasure 
though no other evil were to follow from it as the severest of all mortifications. So what Smith's saying there is that we have an urge to submit. And I would argue, which is, I think, true. I think it comes from being a child. It comes from the idea of looking for a parent. And we have an urge for solutions. And maybe it doesn't come from Voltaire. Maybe it's deep within us. And that leader who says, eh, I'm not sure this is going to work, that chair of the Fed who says that, who's honest, who doesn't pretend he knows all the answers, he's he's dead in the water. It's a, There are very few leaders historically who've been able to have the doubt and honesty and humility that you and I find so attractive. Maybe the reason for that is our nature and not uh, the intellectual trends that you've identified. What do you think I of that? Think that? I think that is in our nature. I think it's an element in our nature, and it's certainly an element that power structures want to encourage and play. Um, I think there are other elements in our nature which we have to work harder. You might say the one you've talked about is the easier one for us to fall back on. It's in a way, it's, it's, I talked a bit earlier, it's, it's almost a lazy element where it's a comfort level element. Democracy or citizenship or balance or doubt is much less comfortable and requires a lot more work. There's no question about it. On the other hand, you feel a lot better about yourself. <laughs> and I do think that, you know, Smith was trying, you're trying to make an argument in, the, in your time. And of course, he was faced with an overwhelming sense that that's what people thought. So he was trying to make an argument of, you know, to help people get beyond it. Look, I just read recently Valerie Grossman's, what is it? Is it Life and Fate? I don't know if you've read it. It's uh, on its novel. That yeah, it, it's um, Life and Fate. I think fate. it's Life and Fate. Yeah, and he wrote it in the 50s. I don't think it came out till 89. And in it, there are three, and it's about, it's about the Soviet Union and the Nazis and the, and, and, and the Jews in, within that and the Holocaust within that and, and fast, and, and, and um, yeah. Uh, Vassal, anyway. and, and in that, there are about three chapters on the building of Auschwitz, Eichmann, and the guy who sort of was under Eichmann. And in those these three chapters, which were not made public until 89, but were written in the 50s, long before we had the stuff about the banality of evil, there is this astonishing description of the pure rationality of Eichmann and the people under Eichmann in the building of the structures of the Holocaust. And, you know, you look at this and you listen, you read this and you know in what isolation he wrote that he instinctively somehow understood what had gone wrong and how it had gone wrong. And those methodologies which produced the, 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 um, uh, the murder of millions and millions of people are the same methodologies that can produce, you know, good, good road systems or, you know, trains running on time or, you know, methodology methodology with the with a sort of denial of ethics denial of human purpose denial of responsibility it's it was one of the most disturbing things to read because it was written in almost total isolation since it was written inside stalin's soviet union well my my favorite line from your book which i can't find but i will blog on it <laughs> is uh I, i've quoted a few that i enjoyed but I, my favorite line is where you say technology has advanced tremendously but we are the same yeah. Uh, and we we created Auschwitz, and we we've done horrific and and evil things, and many great things, right? But this idea that somehow we're new new men and women who who are going to never do those kind of destructive things again is incredibly naive. Yeah. 
Technology is dumb machinery, and we think at approximately the same speed we've always thought. I actually think we might be thinking a little slower as a way of counteracting uh, the speed of the technology. Thank you very much. My guest today has been John Ralston Saul. Uh, his book is Voltaire's Bastards. It will, if you are a regular listener of Econ Talk, you will find many, many passages and parts of it that will enthrall and educate you and others that will make you mad. It's a fascinating book. Thanks for being part of, of Econ Talk, John. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.